ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to the last, but hopefully a very interesting panel of another successful Capital Inc. Forum. Nico and Olga, thank you for having us. Congratulations, you are doing a tremendous job. Another success today, I think. <laughs> thank you. So we are here to discuss the transformation of the shipping industry. The transformation of the shipping industry is not something new anymore. It's something that we are living through and has been discussed and debated several times in forums like this one. The development that triggered the need for changes are several and all interconnected. The need to protect our planet and our environment, for which, allow me to use a BV motto, is what united us, leads to an increased number of regulation, international and national. Technology is evolving helping to meet this regulation, enhance operation, but also often create challenges when same adopted. Geopolitical developments, like the invasion of Russia and Ukraine, or the water supply crisis, which is threatening the Panama Canal, these important maritime routes which link the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, add complexity to operation. But shipping is used to that, and opportunities often emerge. Finally, the market and the financial landscape are always fluid. Again, for shipping, this is business as usual, although now markets are affected by all these new challenges. Today, I have the pleasure and the honor to discuss all these issues one more time, but hopefully bringing a flavor of optimism with a distinguished panel of speakers. Allow me to present them. Mr. Jerry Calogeratos, CEO of Capital Product Partners. Mr. George Margaronis, CEO of Latsco Shipping. Mr. George Saroglu, President of Chacos Energy Navigation. And Mr. Stamatis Chadanis, CEO of Trinity Maritime Holding. So, representing a classification society that is in charge of enforcing the implementation of regulation, I'm hesitant to ask this first question. However, Mr. Saroglu, do you think that shipping is overregulated? Also, do you think that regulation should be dictated only by AMO and not by other governmental entities, for example, EU or US Coast Guard? Can you share with us your experience on the current regulatory framework you are operating in and what are your views and recommendations? Thank you very much. Uh, I think shipping is not afraid of uh, regulation. And in fact, uh, the shipping industry in the last uh, 30 years has gone through, has adapted a lot of uh, regulations. If we start with uh, the implementation of uh, the double hull uh, principle in uh, tankers and the orderly phase out of uh, single hull tankers over a, period, over a period of years, if we move to the introduction of the ISM uh, code, uh, to the development of uh, sulfur emission control areas around uh, the globe and uh, the gradual uh, improvements in the fuel oils that we're using from heavier grades to uh, lower sulfur grades to maybe the latest uh, implementation of the water uh, uh, ballast uh, system convention. So there have been a lot of uh, regulations and I think uh, shipping has done uh, very well. Uh, regulation, of course, is one thing. Implementing and verifying compliance with regulation is another thing, and this is very important in order to create a level, an equal level playing field, and not uh, have uh, a two-tier market with people that uh, you know at least initially 
comply and, uh, comply and you have at the same time people that don't comply to, to, to the regulation. We believe that uh, the IMO should be the only regulatory body in the shipping industry that uh, does this regulation for the simple reason that, uh, first of all, we are talking about a very diverse, very international, very inclusive group that includes the majority of uh, the world, 175 member states, a lot of uh, governmental organizations and non-governmental organizations. So they are the perfect body to, in to regulate an international business like, uh, like uh, uh, shipping. I think if we let uh, different, let's say, countries, regions, um, government, governmental bodies uh, regulate uh, shipping in a different way than uh, the IMO, then this creates again this two-tier market. It creates confusion, it creates uh, additional cost, which at the end of the day, uh, the bearer of this additional cost is going to be the end, uh, the end user. I think uh, right now I will focus a little bit on, uh, on, on the fuel oils and uh, we know that uh, to decarbonize fuel oil is the first key element that we need uh, to, to, to change. We know today that te technology for zero uh, carbon fuels is not there. We need to start with uh, intermediate uh, fuels like biofuels and maybe LNG which we play a role for a few years until we move to fuels that will be more uh, zero, net zero friendly fuels. We need to have uh, a, a stronger framework here and sometimes we need to look at uh, people that uh, are leading and I think it's not just classification society, it's also ports that need to play a very important role in, taking, in making sure, especially when we don't have uh, an agreed specification uh, for fuel oils, uh, to, to safeguard that the quality of the fuels that they will deliver and we are going to burn is going to be uh, the best possible quality. And for that, I will invite the main ports of the world to look at the example of uh, Singapore and deal the same way Singapore has done with quality issues over the years. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Margaronis, from another perspective, do you think that the plethora of regulation governing the shipping industry may open opportunity pathways for a well-organized company? If yes, on what way? I, I would say in a nutshell, yes, it does. Uh, in, in as far as it also squeezes out a lot of the smaller companies, uh, that don't have the resources that are uh, absolutely necessary to, uh, to comply with all the rules and regulations that are currently in force. It's a bit of a pity, actually, because in this country, uh, small family-run companies have been the backbone of, uh, of shipping. But such is the uh, complexity of regulations these days uh, that the operating framework has, been, uh, has become very complicated. Uh, not only do we have to deal with regulations from the IMO and also now the EU with regards to things like EU ETS, GDPR, whistleblowing policies that are now becoming mandatory. So this necessitates uh, quite thorough analysis of what needs to be done to comply, uh, often engaging third-party uh, advisors so as to better understand what's ne what needs to be done that often leads to uh, the necessity to hire 
uh, additional staff that, is, uh, that are specialized or that uh, we need to bring in to facilitate these, uh, these needs. Uh, new departments uh, at times need to be set up. And in addition, uh, we also have to uh, often engage uh, technology as well to help us in the process. All this uh, needs to be uh, also, the other thing we need to keep in mind that in the, particularly in the tanker and gas sector, we also have a lot of uh, demands or an increasingly more stringent uh, guidelines by the oil majors and other industrial bodies. So uh, unfortunately what we've seen is, uh, not unfortunately, but what we've seen is a consolidation of particularly uh, the sector for the more sophisticated type vessels, uh, which is a little bit of a, of a pity actually, uh, because there are good uh, small companies out there that are very serious and have been running for many, many years. Uh, so yes, in a nutshell, it's advantageous for the larger companies, uh, less so for the smaller ones. Thank very you. clear, thank you. Mr. Calogeratos, going a step further than mandatory regulation, environmental, soft, social and governance, what we call ESG criteria, are a set of standards used by some investors to assess the company behavior for the management of sustainable and ethical topics. Do you think that this is an appropriate KPI to assess the aim of a shipping company to innovate, decarbonize their fleet, and remain competitive? No, thank you, Payet. Um, the short answer is yes. And I'm saying this from our own experience. We do publish a sustainability report every year in line with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and I think this experience has been very educational uh, from the moment that we started. ESG, of course, is not just about the environment and decarbonization. It's very much about social responsibility and governance. And these two attributes are quite important um, together with the environment, not just to investors, but to, to all stakeholders. This could be employees, this could be uh, suppliers, customers, financiers, and so on and so forth. But if we were to focus just for a moment on the environmental side, these, the ESG reporting, despite its weaknesses when it comes to definitions and uh, benchmarkings, it can be a very useful tool to understand what companies are doing in that effect. So if a company has been a pioneer in investing in energy efficient ships or a dual fuel uh, ships that use alternative fuels and has re reduced its carbon footprint, it's a fantastic way to be able to showcase that. And Typically, companies that have measured their carbon footprint and understand um, what is their forward projection are companies that are also are very conscious of where they, want, where they are or where they want to go. So the, the use of technology and innovation is very much in their, in the, on, on their radars. So uh, overall, um, I think ESG reporting um, in an environment like this, where decarbonization is one of the key drivers um, and is going to remain so for the next uh, two or three decades, um, is going to play a significant role and in a way it's welcome as it will help companies that are progressive, are pioneers and innovate to differentiate from uh, the more backward looking companies going forward. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Sadanis, from your perspective, as the CEO of a major shipping company, 
is a well-established CSG practice a competitive advantage? How do various stakeholders like financiers or charters respond to ESB requirements? Well, thank you, Payet. For us, uh, we have started this process since uh, 2015, so I believe we must have been one of the first ones um, with very basic things that we introduced at the time and then we build it up uh, over the next few years. Um, for us, it's not a tick-of-the-box exercise. It has never been. It was a very important part of our operations and part of our DNA. And from the beginning, when we started building our fleet to the 4 million deadweight owners that we have today, it was crucial and important that we keep all the ESG and the KPIs in place. So for us, uh, it was never um, something mandatory just to fulfill our obligations with uh, charters and uh, um, and bankers and everybody else, but it was part of our DNA and part of our uh, the way of doing business. Uh, so it's very important to have that and to maintain that uh, no matter what. As far as the reception of what we've done, um, as far as the U.S. investors are concerned, to be honest, we have not really seen any particular impact as to whether we issue um, you know, an ESG report or we don't. And some of our financiers are more sophisticated than others, and they pay, uh, they take a good look at uh, what we announce, and so is uh, some of our charters. I mean, some of them actually uh, do read it, and some others just, um, you know, are happy with the fact that we issue the ESG report. So for us, and I would like to echo what uh, Jerry just said, it's not, you know, only um, a tick-of-the-box exercise, but it's very important to have uh, the ESG targets in place and uh, to um, add value to the whole chain of uh, the transportation work that we offer uh, to, to, to the world. Thank you, Samatis. Coming to you again, Mr. Margaronis, it is obvious that the revised IMO target and timeline cannot be met without adopting alternative fuels. Do you believe that their adoption is feasible in the time frame promulgated by the IMO? and how we should approach decarbonization on the existing ship. Does carbon capsule sound a feasible alternative? Thank you, Bridget. Um I was actually uh, looking through uh, the MEPC 80 uh, levels of ambition, as they're described. And uh, in short, I think they are overly optimistic and non-pragmatic. Uh, there are various challenges here. I think, first of all, is the fact that uh, alternative fuel technology at its best is at a uh, very, uh, very early stage of development. Most of the new buildings now, if we look at the order book, with the exception of LNG carriers, obviously use LNG as a dual fuel. Uh, the vast majority of VLGC ships now also are dual fuel. And of course, the large container ships that predominantly also have the capability of burning LNG, although now there's an, a trend with the uh, adoption of green methanol by certain uh, larger companies. Uh, but that overall is, is quite limited in its extent. And if you look at the more mainstream sectors like tankers and bulk carriers, there there's very little uh, that's in fact being done. But even LNG and LPG uh, produce CO2 emissions that are far uh, far higher than the, what needs to be done. Uh, and in addition, LNG actually also produces methane slip, which is considered more damaging to the environment than CO2 itself. 
and, and these are fine for the interim, and this is how really we need to perceive them. Now, going forward, I think, uh, and, and looking at the other sectors that are critical, which are the bulk carriers and, and the tankers, particularly the smaller ones, um, I think there it's, it's increasingly challenging to see uh, how these ships can adopt alternative fuels. Their trade is such that involves a multitude of, of smaller, less developed ports, whether they're smaller bulk carriers, handies, supers, ultras, or product tankers. They're trading to all sorts of places in the world where it is, I wouldn't say impossible, but very, very difficult to see how the necessary infrastructure will, will ever be put in place uh, in order to facilitate the supply of alternative fuels as and when they come along. So I think one needs to, to look at this problem rather than uh, in its totality, look at it on a slightly more piecemeal approach and, 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 and adopt and, and sort of give up on this one-size-fits-all approach. So just going back to the handies and, and the smaller bulk carriers and tankers, I think uh, invariably what, what is likely to happen there because these are fleets that are not growing at breakneck speeds uh, as there are other ships like the large container ships. Uh, one would expect that as the older ships are, are gradually retired, more modern ships, more eco ships, more um, ships with burning less fuel will uh, assist in the direction of reducing the overall uh, shipping carbon footprint. I think the predictability of trading patterns uh, which one encounters with larger ships and the existence of the infrastructure, I think that's, that's useful. Uh, and that's helpful in, in, in finding uh, solutions that are potentially viable. Now, on the alternative fuel front, at the moment, what we have is, is green methanol and green ammonia. Um, they're available in only very small quantities, difficult to source, extremely expensive, and also require considerable volumes as well to yield the same result as fuel. And on top of which, green ammonia is highly toxic, and I really don't see that taking off as an alternative. Carbon capture, on the other hand, I mean, I was quite fascinated because I've been reading about it for, for, for a while. It's not new technology. It's been around uh, land-based mainly. Uh, and that does sound like uh, a pretty good idea. You, you continue using the same fuel we're using now and have the capability of capturing the carbon, which is quite considerable in terms of its amounts because it amounts about three times the amount of fuel that you're burning. So the question that beckons is, what do you do with the CO2 that you, you capture? Where do you store it? Where do you offload it? Uh, and I know there's various challenges at the moment and you know, companies are looking at various alternatives. Uh, I've seen a few even uh, on, on YouTube uh, that involve even dropping a solid form of the captured CO2 into the, uh, into the sea. I don't know what becomes of it and I don't know the details, but that, you know, that sounded like a pretty damn good idea. Um, so that's, yeah, that's it. We have heard in one of the previous panel about the human element, and of course we all agree that the human element is of vital importance for this industry. Another major issue is adequate training that will be required on board the vessel for the implementation of new technologies. Mr. Saroglu, we see BIMCO and ICS notice a lack of seafarers with technical experience on chemical and crude tankers and on management level. Do you feel that this situation is likely to worsen in the coming years due to the implementation of various technological innovation on board? 
I think uh, <clears throat> we start with uh, the fact that uh, we are, as we speak, we are short on seafarers, uh, especially officers, and this uh, shortage is going to get uh, worse if we if we have a five-year uh, horizon. We also don't have the training facilities, I think, worldwide to bring to train. Uh, the number of uh, seafarers and bring lower ratings to the officers to the officer status very very quickly. We also have uh, technology that is uh, evolving uh, very quickly, and we need to marry. We need to integrate people with uh, technology and the skill sets that maybe we need to train our seafarers and our office people today might not be the same. You know, in five years from now, or in ten years from now, as a lot of uh, uh, a lot, we have a lot of unknowns as to how we are going to 100% achieve uh, compliance with the emission goals that uh, are being uh, set. Knowing, for example, that today we have uh, LNG and biofuels, tomorrow we have a different set of uh, fuels, and who knows what we will have in 2050. We need to train continuously our people, and uh, this uh, the, this uh, new set of skills are going to become uh, more complex. I think we're going to have uh, on board our vessels people who will, will have some chemical skills. We'll have also some more advanced uh, IT skills than basically basic knowledge of uh, ITs. I think there are certain uh, crises uh, that uh, are happening as we speak right now that makes this shortage of uh, qualified uh, seafarers even worse. If we look at uh, what is happening in the war, in Russia and Ukraine, and if you think that uh, almost 50% of um, Ukrainians and Russians uh, are part of the available pool of qualified seafarers today, this is a big pool to ignore or to have uh, restrictions in being able to move from A to B, in being able to train, uh, recertify, because you know very well that in their countries right now you cannot recertify these seafarers, let alone also deal with uh, the psychological uh, stress that these people are feeling going through these uh, issues. The human element has always been very key to the success of any shipping company, and it's going to, be, to play a bigger even role going, uh, going uh, forward. Thank you. Thank you. We all agree that safety is a key aspect in our industry. And definitely the introduction of alternative fuels brings new safety challenges for the crews. Mr. Kalogeratos, having already progressed into LNG shipping as a company some years ago, do you think LNG industry safety culture is a good starting point to be passed to other market segments adopting new fuels? Yeah, sure. The LNG industry is definitely very well regulated with um, a body of um, clear uh, stipulations uh, from uh, all the regulatory bodies, um, from the design and construction of uh, a ship, from classification societies to the IMO, um, flag registries, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, it's an industry that has been around for decades and uh, has uh, definitely matured quite a bit. However, I, I think that the trick, if you want, uh, that uh, has guaranteed uh, the excellent track record of the LNG industry is not so much regulation per se. Um, we can 
produce a lot of regulation and we have excellent people that um, I'm sure will be able to um, describe and uh, try to mitigate risks with uh, prescribing very extensive regulations. But in the end, it's about the safety culture of, uh, of its company and how this is conveyed to crews by training, by having um, very clear uh, processes, manuals, and uh, yet training again, if I, if I may. So the LNG industry has been able to achieve that and have, a, let's say, a more comprehensive type of uh, safety culture across um, the um, uh, ship managers out there. It's mostly because it's a smaller community. The capital in intensiveness of, of the investment um, requires, um, almost by definition, creates barriers to entry. And the companies that uh, do go ahead with this investment, they, they typically create quality managers um, that uh, also subsequently create this type of safety culture. So I, I think going back to um, George Margaronis's point earlier on, if we are to, let's say, look at the dry bulk industry, where um, owners and managers um, are a lot more, with, as it is a very fragmented industry, with uh, different types of regulation and um, uh, crew training, you wonder if we were to introduce a fuel like ammonia with its toxicity, how easy it is going to be to create the same safety culture that, for example, has been uh, managed and uh, safeguarded in the LNG industry. So I think there's quite, um, quite a few questions to answer as, uh, with regard to alternative fuels. And simply producing more regulation uh, is not going to be enough. It's for sure going to be needed, but uh, I think we have to create also a very different culture to what um, is, um, uh, that we currently have in certain segments of shipping. Thank you. Touching now a different subject that we heard a lot from a previous panel of my friend Spiros, digitalization is revolutionizing the shipping industry in multiple ways. AI is being utilized for predictive maintenance, route optimization, fuel consumption management. Mr. Margaronis, do you apply such practices and have you seen benefit and at the same time challenges and difficulties? And what are those? At LATSCO, we, uh, we have invested both in people and, uh, and technology to drive our digitalization forward. Uh, both onshore and onboard ships. You touched on three points. Predictive maintenance is something that we've already embarked on on a trial basis on one of our VLGCs, which was concluded at, uh, during spring of this year, where we have five or six, if I recall correctly, pieces of machinery that are put through this process. And we also have the necessary notation. Uh, route optimization. It's something that we're in the process of implementing. Uh, we've shortlisted three companies, and hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have decided on which ones to progress with. Fuel consumption management is something that we already have in place. I would say challenges, uh, the integration of, of new and old personnel, uh, bringing the two together with the different skill sets that they have and the different experiences that they've, they have, the younger people who are more tech-oriented with the older, more traditional shipping uh, folks. The other challenge, obviously, the accuracy of the data collected and the correct implementation of that data. And finally, uh, as of the benefits, I would say we expect them to be considerable, but in reality, it's a little bit too early to, to see just yet. 
Um, but we believe that they will provide for a safer and more cost-effective operation. Digitalization is becoming part of our day life, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to money and the financial factor. A huge amount of money will be required to finance the pathway of shipping towards decarbonization. Mr. Zardanis, where do you expect the capital to come from? And who will shoulder this responsibility? Is it investors, charterers, ship owners, contributions through market bay measure, or what else? Well, I think that's a, that's a great question. We've been hearing uh, figures uh, ranging from billions to trillions uh, in order to replace uh, the current fleet. So I think it has become a little bit of a wild guess what the cost of uh, decarbonization is going to be at the end of the day. Um, the answer is that we don't know, and uh, we don't know because uh, you don't actually know what the prevailing solution is going to look like, whether it's going to be the hydrogen ship or the green methanol ship or the ammonias or carbon capturing or a number of things. Is it going to be an investment on the current vessels to become more efficient? Is it going to be new buildings um, with alternative fuels? We don't really know what the solution is going to look like. So. Um, as far as the uh, current cost is concerned, in order to improve the existing fleet, we have been very successfully for the last uh, five years sharing that cost with our charterers. So I don't really believe that the first phase of decarbonization, which is improving the current fleet uh, as it is, um, finance is not going to be an issue. So if we share the cost between charterers and uh, owners, and we have seen that the charters are way more receptive into this kind of ideas, uh, structurings, um, in order to make the vessels uh, more efficient and uh, more environmental friendly. I think that's the, um, the way forward. Uh, nothing can be achieved um, for the future if all the stakeholders of the industry do not share the cost. So as far as we're concerned, Financing is not going to be a problem as long as all the stakeholders agree to share the equivalent um, cost uh, associated with this investment. How difficult to achieve that, though. I hope we all agree on that. However, it goes without saying that the viability of a shipping company depends on its ship manager ability to navigate in constant uncertainty and anticipate the changing market condition. Mr. Saroglu, what are the threats of a robust ship management? Is it regulatory compliance? Is it adoption of new technology? Is it financial stability? Please enlighten us and be short, please. I think all of the above. Uh, all of the above. To adapt to change and to be resilient, uh, I mean, this is what uh, shipping has uh, shown uh, the whole world, that uh, this is what we are in the last three years with COVID and the war in uh, Ukraine. So uh, shipping, of course, is people, as I, said, as I mentioned before. And uh, without uh, uh, the people that we have in the office and uh, on board the vessels, we will not be able to be here standing in front of you. So their talent, their commitment, their professionalism, we cannot operate uh, an efficient ship without them. Integration of people with uh, technology. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it is a given. With uh, technology advancing so much, we need to marry people and technology together. We hear for so many new uh, initiatives on artificial intelligence. We, take, uh, we need to take uh, this thing, uh, examine all those things very carefully, because we, before we see how they apply, 
And we need to train the, our people in the, these new technologies and make sure that technology serves our people rather than pe uh, technology, you know, take uh, the lead from, uh, from uh, our people. Technology is an assistant and is not substituted to people. And of course, last but not least, being financially strong and uh, having the access to capital whenever you need it, because shipping, as we all know, is a very capital-intensive business, and uh, shipping time, good shipping times don't last uh, forever. So this is something that everybody should have, uh, should have uh, in mind, and have access to both debt and capital market uh, money in order to grow, no matter where you are into the shipping cycle. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we talk about uh, geopol geopolitical tensions and the last one and a half year were experienced a lot in East Europe with the invasion of Russia and Ukraine. Mr. Margaronis, in what degree do you uh, rising geopolitical tension in various parts of the world impact the shipping industry? Overall, is that negative or positive? Because many times we say that any geopolitical disruption is an opportunity for shipping. Do you agree with that? It is the absolute opportunity, I'd say, particularly for the tanker space. I mean, I think what we've seen in terms of rates is very much the result of what's happened in, in Ukraine. And uh, it's unfortunate that good times uh, for us uh, happen during dramatic times for so many thousands of people. But uh, the reality is that the inefficiencies that have been created and, and the disruption to traditional trading patterns have had a profound impact on, on Ton Mile, and this is what we're seeing now. Enjoy a very good market. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But we have seen alliance also in shipping, uh, mostly on, on the container companies, but not only. For many, are considered a safety net, allowing the way forward. Mr. Kalogeratos, do you believe that formation of allowance without stakeholders in order to share resources and information will increase your bargaining power, market access, and financial stability? Obviously, like in any other industry, information is uh, key and is a big advantage for, uh, for its company. The footprint of its company, its, um, um, its ability to, to source uh, transactions, um, um, its customers, there is, um, uh, there is definitely you know, something to be said about the value of information overall that has to be kept um, uh, private to its company. But where I think sharing is going to make a lot of sense and we should be doing a lot more about it is exactly back to our discussion about decarbonization. Testing of alternative fuels, technologies, um, engines, equipment, energy saving devices, retrofits. There should be definitely more sharing of that type of information because in the end we are all working towards the same goal. And, um, and uh, I think right now, each of one of us has their own basket of information, but if we were to combine it, we would have a lot more clarity as to what works and what doesn't. Coming to the end of this interesting discussion, I hope, I would like to ask first Mr. Tsandanis, and then if anybody else would like to express his opinion. Having contact with a range of stakeholders in the industry and a good overall picture out of all the challenges discussed today, would you consider to be the biggest one that the shipping industry faces today? And what are the biggest changes you see in the horizon? Well, that's a great question because a few years ago, when someone was asked about the biggest fear, that was inflation. So everybody was talking about inflation, and you know, they were absolutely right because inflation is bad for growth, is bad for shipping, is bad for you know, a lot of things in general. 
After a year and a half uh, in a war, which is happening uh, in Europe, and uh, possible other uh, geopolitical military actions in various other parts of the world, I say that uh, inflation could be the least of our problems, and uh, the biggest risk would be um, a prolonged global military um, situation where no one can really you know, predict what the future is going to look like. And uh, when I say that, I mean there are tensions in the Far East with China and Taiwan. Um, there is uh, the risk of uh, potential prolonged war in Europe. Uh, there are other risks associated with that. So in our opinion, I think uh, the biggest uh, risk facing uh, the world and shipping today is a global military situation that's going to have a prolonged effect not just for the trade, but for our lives in general. So we'll, we'll just finish on time to make it. So we all agree that the pathway towards shipping transformation is filled with challenges and opportunities, but also with many uncertainties. Sometimes we would like to have a crystal ball that will get us the right answer, but we don't have one. I take this opportunity to thank the distinguished panelists for providing their insightful views I hope that we manage to set some light to this million-dollar question. Please join me in giving them a well-deserved round of applause.